Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey, man, thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grantham Church. Welcome to worship this morning. Thanks for joining us in person via live stream. My name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham, and we have been in a prayer series, a three-part mini-series on prayer called Our Cry for the Kingdom. We're going to continue that this morning. In this series, we are focusing on the need to engage with corporate prayer. As I said last week, throughout the scripture and church history, every spiritual awakening and renewal was founded upon intense corporate kingdom-centered prayer. Therefore, we must see prayer as being about more than going to God for our own spiritual and physical needs or for the purpose of personal growth. It is for those things, but it's, it's much more. In addition to those things, we must see prayer as our cry for more of the kingdom. So what does the Bible say about this? This is what we're looking at. And what might it look like if we begin to pray this way at Grantham? Last Sunday, we looked at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, and how God waits for his people to voice a collective cry for help. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I reminded us last Sunday that my people is not America. It is the body of Christ. It is the church with a capital C. And we need, as the scripture says in this verse, humility. We need to humble ourselves. We need to confess our sins We need to repent and be broken over those sins and pray and call out to God. Listen to what Stanley Grins, a theologian, said in his book on prayer. He said, often God will not act until we realize that we cannot make it on our own. God will not do what God desires to do until we come to see that we desperately need God's intervention in our lives. As long as we erroneously think that we can handle life situations on our own, God simply stands aside. Divine resources do not break into our situation until we admit that life has grown too immense for our own abilities. Think about that, church. After last week's message, several of you asked this question, how can we engage in corporate prayer at Grantham Church. And here's what I share with you in the most recent email from the pastor this past week. Here are ways that you can join in corporate prayer. Number one, use the opportunities that you already have to pray corporately. Set aside a time to pray in your small groups, in your learning communities, in commission meetings, whatever, in board meetings, whatever it is. Set aside time to pray. Don't just see prayer as bookends to these religious things that we do really truly devote time to cry out for the kingdom. Pray specifically for renewal and awakening 
in the church. Also pray for the spiritual needs and a fresh fire in our own congregation. Number two, I said come to church a little earlier on Sunday morning and pray in your pew. Pray here at the altars. Uh, Go to the prayer room. We had a group praying this morning in the prayer room. All of this organic and spontaneous. Our worship team already does this sort of thing every Sunday morning right here up front. Pray for the Spirit to move in our services. Pray for confession, repentance, vulnerability, a hunger for more of the kingdom. Don't just come to church and do business as usual, right? You have to be intentional about this thing. Number three, I said join in prayer with others in the church who you know are also burdened and long for renewal and awakening. Uh, this, you know, we want to be careful not to say, we're going to call a prayer meeting, and then somebody's going to feel it's their obligation and duty to show up to the prayer meeting because the church is doing something. Instead, we want this to be natural. We want this to be about God moving on people's hearts to do this and for you to act and respond. So we welcome you to come up to the church uh, with friends during office hours to pray. You can pray in the sanctuary. Uh, in the prayer room, as I said, you can pray in the prayer garden. We have one of those out back, or even pray while walking our halls. Who knows? Maybe the staff will join you if we have a moment and we see you up here. And then number four, we said we, if you want to start or join a prayer meeting, about a month ago someone uh, scheduled the prayer room on Tuesdays at 4.30. Uh, they came to me and said, hey, Pastor David, I'm feeling led to pray. Others can join me if they want. You don't have to put this in the body life or announce or anything, but uh, so this is about as close as I'm getting to doing that. Uh, so if that, but that's, if that resonates with you or you need an, a different time, well, just let us know in the church office, whatever works. Why not join them or set up another time? Just let us know that you're going to do that. And then lastly, this pertains to next week. Stay tuned for next week's sermon, the final sermon in the series. I'll be sharing a simple short prayer that our entire church can pray together as we move into the fall. All right, so stay tuned for that. Would you pray with me now? Father, we open up our hearts to you. Uh, We recognize, Lord, this morning that there's nothing that we can say or do necessarily for your spirit to move. It is mysterious, but you do call us to humble ourselves, to confess our sins, Lord, to cry out to you for more of the kingdom. And so we say to you, Lord, this morning that our hearts are open and ready to hear from you. Would you speak, Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? For it's in Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Would you grab your Bible or the pew Bible in front of you, whichever, and uh, turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 17. And would you stand with me as we read the scriptures together? Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handling handling him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after 
the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision, dreaming. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Now when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice... She was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, church. What a story, right? The apostle Peter here is being held in prison. He's he's awaiting trial and execution. The church in Jerusalem begins to corporately pray for Peter. We see that as they're praying in the house. And Peter thinks he's dreaming, but the angel actually sets him free. says he came to his senses. He goes to the house. The church was gathered in for prayer. And the church, did you see that rather humorously, doesn't believe that he's at the door. Now, what do we learn from this story? Maybe a few things that come to your mind. Here are a couple things that ought to jump out at you. And that is, number one, that corporate prayer makes a difference. And we shouldn't be surprised when God answers those corporate prayers. And then number two, we see this. The cosmic struggle between good and evil is not just between human beings, but it also involves angelic beings. As we see in the scripture, some keep to his will and others do not. We see this in the Old Testament as well. You may recall the story in Daniel chapter 10. The prophet Daniel is now in his old age. You recall the stories of Daniel. A lot of you probably heard them growing up in Sunday school. Uh, Daniel is uh, a young Hebrew man who originally is taken out of Jerusalem into Babylonian exile. He's smart. Uh, he's trained. He, the, he has the gifts that God has given him. The Lord is with him and blessing him. 
And so Babylon uses them in their high court under Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Daniel, we know, is a person of prayer. He's, this guy's praying all the time. In fact, he would often open up the doors overlooking the city and pray for the city. You'll also remember that Daniel, and probably the most well-known story of all, is he's put in a lion's den eventually because he won't stop praying to Yahweh. And, of course, God delivers him through his prayers by shutting the mouth of the lion. But this is years and years later. In fact, the Persians are now coming in, in control over God's people. So we've gone from one empire to the next. Daniel is praying by the Tigris River. He is fasting. He's praying for insights into the future of God's people. Where is God going next? He wants a, an answer and interpretation to a vision. And he does this, and he mourns for three weeks. Now, you think about that, right? Praying and fasting and mourning for three weeks without an answer to his prayers. Now, Daniel has always seen God work at the end of those prayers, but for some reason, it's taking a lot longer, it seems, this time around. And then finally, this angel appears there in Daniel chapter 10. This is what it says in verse 12 through 14. The angel says, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. What's that? Three weeks. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, who's Michael? Michael is an angel. So you get the idea here. These princes are not people. They are angels. Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia, who is a human being. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Look at what's happening here. Daniel prays. The angel says, God heard you the moment you prayed, but there was stuff going on that you were unaware of. There was a struggle. There was a real battle taking place. So one of the lessons we learn in Daniel chapter 10 is that while you may not see the struggle going on behind the scenes in heavenly realms, we can trust that when we pray, we are moving heaven and also getting the attention of spiritual evil in high places. I experienced this firsthand when, when I was in college some years ago now. And uh, Sunday nights, I would be in my room by myself. Most students would leave for the weekend. A lot of them would anyways. Certainly my roommates did and wouldn't come back until Monday morning for their eight o'clock class. So I had the room to myself on Sunday evenings. And I was a youth pastor at the time, and so after church on Sunday night, when they still did that thing, I would come back to my room, and I would use that time by myself to play my guitar, to sing worship songs. The shower worked great for that, not with the water on, of course, but had great acoustics in there, you know, and uh, the things my roommates didn't know. And so after I would do that, I would, I would spend a great deal of time in prayer. In fact, I made a list, a long list of people that I was praying for, people that I had partied with before repentance, for family members who I felt were under demonic strongholds, for people that had influenced me in my rebellion, 
Folks, I was praying for Ozzy Osbourne and Marilyn Manson. And you know, maybe I was just young enough or naive enough, <laughs> that could be a good thing, to believe that when I called upon God, God would pray. In fact, I had the sort of mindset that I'm going to pray until something happens. And I did that. And one night, one Sunday night, when I was alone in my room, and after I had had a, a praise and worship session and prayed laying prostrate out on the floor and falling asleep reading the Psalms, I was awakened in the middle of the night feeling like I was being held to the bed and couldn't breathe and just sensed a darkness that I'd never felt before in my dorm room. And all I could do was look down at the foot of my bed, and I was on the top bunk, and I saw the dark part of a silhouette of a being, as if it was looking at me and holding me on the bed and almost threatening me. And all I could do was cry out for Jesus. When this happened, almost like the story we saw with Peter, I came to my senses, realized what had happened, and thought, I must have done that <laughs> through my prayers. Now, I don't tell you that story, so if you pray really hard too, demons can come visit you in your dorm room. But as a reminder that this stuff is real. Now, I know some of you are listening very skeptically. You, you think maybe you just had a, a night terror, as they call them. But folks, this is the only time this has ever happened. This was not some repeated pattern. It was a one-time event. And it made sense because I immediately connected it to my prayer life, to the people and the things that I was praying for, and to how I believed in the power of those prayers. Friends, the, this battle of the wills, both human and angelic, as we see in Acts 12 and we read about in Daniel 10, is real. Which is why the Apostle Paul said this to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So get this picture. It is not just the natural world that is existing today. It is also the spiritual one. As there are free agents who use their wills and make decisions to influence reality in the future, so there is behind the scenes in the heavenly realms. And Paul says the real battle is spiritual. Therefore, our weapons must be spiritual as well. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. He said, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Listen to what Paul is saying. You thought as Anabaptists we weren't supposed to fight. We do fight, but we fight a spiritual war. We fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. So don't trip up over these violent warlike metaphors. Paul uses them all the time, and he believed in nonviolence, as Jesus did. If you look at the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 6, what does Paul do? He describes putting on the armor of God for this spiritual battle. 
So again, he says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And I would say, brothers and sisters, we have strongholds at work today in our lives, in the church, and in our country and around the world. And look, I know, I know, I know this sounds what it sounds like to some people, it sounds crazy. But I want to submit to you that I think that's because an increasing number of Westerners embrace what is called scientism. Listen carefully, we're not anti-science, but scientism, what's that about? It's this idea that the hard sciences alone can answer our questions, solve our mysteries, and provide the real knowledge of reality. And if you think about it, it's just another version of fundamentalism. As we've pushed God out of the picture, as Nietzsche said, God is dead, it creates a vacuum, and something has to fill it if it's not religion, if it's not theology, heck, if it's not even philosophy. We've thrown logic out the window too. Something has to fill it. And if you, again, think about it, 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 it feels like a sort of fundamentalism. It's arrogant, it's narrow-minded, and as Greg Boyd reminds us, he, it totally disregards the worldview and perspectives of all those not living in the West. In his book, God at War, Boyd writes, one is hard-pressed to find any culture prior to or contemporary with our own that does not assume something like this spiritual warfare perspective. From a cross-cultural perspective, the insight that the cosmos is teeming with spiritual beings whose behavior can and does benefit or harm us is simply common sense. It is Westerners who are the oddballs for thinking that the only free agents who influence other people and things are humans. And isn't it ironic for folks who believe that they are woke and want us to listen to people of color, do not listen to them on this. And a good bit of the church is in this category, trying to tell us that there's something real about the world which we often want to live oblivious to. Because it would be embarrassing if we admitted that to other people who believe in science. But folks, we cannot afford to deny this aspect of reality if we're going to join God in the cosmic struggle. What hope do we have in waging war against evil in the spiritual realms if we deny its existence, or at least live practically as if it doesn't exist. You see, if we're going to see prayer as our cry for the kingdom, as the way we fight as Christians, then we need to accept this New Testament worldview, that there is a battle of human angelic wills, and though it probably doesn't involve swords and blood flying, there is something mysterious, yes, but something also real. And I don't really need to know what it looks like, nor do I want to, to believe that it's true. As it is with a lot of things in life. We may not understand it, it may be a mystery, but there is plenty of evidence that it is real. And so we need to embrace it and live into this more of, a, this more of an awareness of this truth in our prayer life. And it may be that by accepting this truth, that you discover what's been missing in your prayer life and has too often kept you from praying like it matters. And of course, there may be other things that aren't helping your prayer life, so I'd like us to think about that for just a moment. You say, maybe I don't pray 
I venture to say that a lot of us would say we don't pray as much as we ought, but you say, no, no, I'm pretty bad, and, and I don't pray as I ought, and there are some reasons for that. Well, let's think about that. Why is it that we don't pray as we ought? This is, these are some possible reasons. I think a lot of these things are at work subconsciously at times. We, we don't go around thinking about them, even having discussions about them, but let's think about these categories. Views that help or hurt our prayer life. Number one, how we view the nature of time and the universe. If you live in a world where you think everything is already determined, well, you're going to believe that there's nothing really that you can do to change anything. We often hear this expressed, and prayer doesn't change God, it only changes you. Well, folks, if that's true, I want to become a Buddhist. But in fact, Christian prayer teaches something different, that when you pray, we move heaven and earth. So we don't live in this predetermined, everything is set, everything is fated kind of world, but rather we have a certain amount of freedom to change things. We don't operate upon a, a blueprint theology where it's all mapped out, all set. We're just, you know, playing it out. But rather we embrace this world warfare worldview, that there's a real battle of the wills. And we need to get straight on this. We need to get straight on this because if you think that God is behind the evil and the brokenness, don't you think that that's going to keep you from going to God in prayer? But if you believe that the world is broken and not as it should be, not because of God, but because there's been evil at work for millions upon billions of years, and you know that God is for us, not against us, and you believe that God has been fully revealed in Jesus, that we've not always known this, but we know this now because of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, then you see, you stop blaming God and putting it on, upon God the things that are actually from the evil one. I think that makes a big difference. So your nature of time and universe matters. Also this idea of God's sovereignty, his character and image, which is really what I just, was just talking about. Is, does God look like Zeus throwing down the lightning bolts? Is God just some cosmic Santa Claus? Or is he truly like the Abba Father of Jesus that looks like Jesus? Paul said the image of the invisible God has been shown to us. The author of Hebrews said he is the exact representation of God's being. And folks, Jesus doesn't send hurricanes to Louisiana. He doesn't send earthquakes to Haiti. We live in a broken world and one in which, although we don't always know why, has been influenced by this evil. And lastly, a view that could help or hurt our prayer life is God's foreknowledge and His partnership with us. If you believe all is settled and final, well, that's going to lead to a certain type of praying. But if you believe that the future is open to some degree, that possibilities are real, and that we, like a choose-your-own-adventure book, get to actualize the future, well, then you'll pray as such. My friends, I submit to you that we live in a world, and this happens every day. You, you, we all, regardless of your theology, operate as if it is true, so we need to line up belief with actions here, that we live in a world where God has given us a certain amount of freedom, a certain amount of say-so to actualize his good future through our decisions and particularly through our prayers where we say yes to the kingdom and become conduits of his grace, where we partner with God in bringing heaven to earth. 
You know, that's what the Methodist missionary E. Stanley Jones had in mind when he wrote this. He said, for in prayer, you align yourself to the purposes and the power of God, and he is able to do through you that he couldn't do otherwise. For this is an open universe where some things are left open, contingent upon our doing them. If we do not do them, they will never be done. So God has left certain things open to prayer, things which will never be done except we pray. Let that sink in, church. And finally, I'd like to give us some takeaways that I think can help us in our spiritual fight. How can we use prayer in our spiritual fight against evil and partner with God in bringing the kingdom to earth. You might want to write these things down or take a picture of it, whichever. Number one, and hopefully you've been hearing this, we need to see prayer as our say-so power. And we need to pray in the name of Jesus. Now think about it. A fire is raging. You've been given a water hose, but you keep it wrapped up and hidden away as if it doesn't exist. Doesn't make a lot of sense, now does it? You've been given some say-so authority. How are you using it? And is all of that say-so just about your own life? Or are you using that power and authority for the church and for the world around you? Now, why don't we say pray in the name of Jesus? Because this is where the authority comes from. Jesus said, I've been given all authority and power. It belongs to me. And he shares it with us. So we're to go, right, to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To be carriers and bearers of the gospel of Christ. And to push back on evil that rages against God's will. You see, Jesus is the highest authority. Are you praying in his name? And from a place of personal relationship with him because it matters. If you turn and look at Acts chapter 19, there's a story there, verse 13 through 16 where these folks had heard about what the apostles were doing in the name of Jesus and casting out demons. They thought, that's pretty cool. I want that power. And so they started to go around and try to do the same thing. Instead, this is how their formula went. In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out. Well, this was a, a particularly powerful demon. Actually, there were several of them, the Scripture says. And they said, they said this, Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? And then it says it beat them to a bloody pulp. <laughs> and then everybody feared what might happen without the authority of Jesus. My point in telling you that story is this. Remind us that if we don't know Jesus, and we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus then what kind of authority, we should ask ourselves, does our prayer actually have? It is because of Christ and in the name of Jesus that we do what we do and pray what we pray. You say, well, what if I'm praying things that maybe Jesus doesn't want me to pray? Well, there's this part of the Lord's Prayer which we prayed this morning that is sort of the safety on this gun, right? On this trigger. And that is this. We say, thy will be done. Just as Jesus did in the garden. Father, this is what I want. But then what does Jesus say? Not my will, but yours 
be done. So we need to see prayer as our say-so power. We need to pray in the name of Jesus. Number two, we need to pray with authenticity and passion and put your heart into it. Don't try to impress God or others with your prayers. Be real and be honest. Sometimes I hear people praying to God as if they, they don't do this thing very often. <laughs> you ever notice that? And it's not that they need to pray pharisaical prayers that are all polished and sound good, but it's, it's a prayer as if, as if God is like a Zeus, that God is far away, that God is not personal. But rather, we're called to come to God and pray to God as if He's a loving Father. And what sense would it make if we said we have a loving relationship with, with Father, with someone that we're supposed to have an intimate relationship with, but we spoke as if we were emotionless? Rather, we need to pray to God like we mean it. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 29, verse 13. He said, you will seek me. The Lord said through Jeremiah, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Put your heart into it, church. And then number three, how can we use prayer in our spiritual fight against evil and partner with God in bringing the kingdom? Weaponize your prayers. Resist evil and call down the kingdom. Weaponize, Pastor David, that seems a little strong. Yes, yes. Again, this is our spiritual fight. Pray like your prayers are a spiritual weapon because they are. And since your prayers are a weapon, aim them at the real enemy, folks, and kick the devil in the face. Use your prayers as if they really matter and they push back on hell. Use scripture, use prayer just as Jesus did in the desert. Because if we don't do this, if we pretend that this isn't a part of reality, if we don't use our prayers in this way, then evil will have its way in God's world. As we come now to a time of invitation and response, I'm going to ask you to do something. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? I want you to use your imagination. Maybe you don't do this very often, so just bear with me. Give it, give it your best shot here. I want you to imagine that you're on the front lines in God's spiritual army. I mean, you've probably seen some war films, right? Picture that scene. You're on the front lines. You're down in the dirt. You're down in the trenches. You're taking on heavy spiritual fire in your life, in your family, in the church. What is happening in this battle? Do you see it? Who or what are your enemies? What is coming up against you? What's coming up against us? Do you see the evil all around you, all around the church and in our world? Now, what are you going to say 
to our loving Father who is himself a mighty fortress who also happens to command legions of angels. What are you going to say? And that, brothers and sisters, is how I'm inviting us to pray as a church. Father, the battle rages around us, and we know that you've not left us alone. You've given us spiritual armor. You've given us the ability to call down the kingdom. So we engage in that battle this morning and we cry out for more of you.